This morning we return to Ecclesiastes chapter 5, where we began last week. Again, we'll read the first seven verses. Last week I looked at verse 1 under the title, Watch Your Step. So, sermon titles are important. I mean, you might think they're not, but um, the sermon title is trying to say the, the content of the sermon in one sentence or one phrase. And uh, preachers are taught, if you can't say it in a sentence, you won't be able to say it in 30 minutes or an hour. And so we need to be able to summarize. So in, in, in thinking about last week's title, that was easy. I just took it from the text. Watch your step. Keep your foot. So I thought, well, what do we title this one? And I thought, well, we can follow the same, uh, the same path. Watch your step last week. Watch your mouth. And I thought, well, maybe that's a bit harsh. Maybe unnecessarily harsh. So I, I think taking the title of today's sermon from the children's Sunday school song might be more palatable for us. Some of you will remember, oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Oh, be careful, little mouth, what you say. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, we'll read verses 1 through 7. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business and a fool's voice is known by a multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldst not vow than that thou shouldst vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities but fear thou God. God in heaven, we do ask your blessing on the word today. We pray that you would hide the minister behind the cross of Christ and speak to your people in Jesus' name. Amen. So by way of review, last week we did consider the command of verse 1 Keep thy foot or guard your step. Someone put it this way, tread carefully. And we saw that this was a command and a warning and that it was related to attendance to the house of God. And for us, the application is church attendance. And we took these points from the fool's sacrifice that is warned that we should not offer the fool's sacrifice, but that we should come prepared to listen. We took the points from the fool's sacrifice and then considered how the wise person would attend church or how the wise person should go to the house of God. We said the fool might go, well, the fool might not go. 
The fool might not go, but we should go. It is commanded in Scripture more than one time, all over Scripture. Uh, and the wise man goes to church. We said the fool doesn't go ready to hear. And we should, as wise worshipers, come ready to hear the word of God. We said the fool attends the house of God with pride. And the wise man comes with humility. The fool does not consider his sin and the wise man comes with a repentant heart. We also notice that when the fool does attend church, there are often other priorities, other agendas that he has. And we said a few, the fool uses worship to network as a business building tool. The fool uses worship to socialize as a friend building tool. The fool uses worship to be entertained and the fool attends worship to sit in judgment over the word of God. And we looked then at a few biblical examples of the foolish sacrifice in church. We brought up the Old Testament example of Nadab and Abihu. Remember, they offered strange fire before the Lord. They came to church, as it were, with creativity and innovation. And we said that the wise man will observe the regulative principle of worship and only bring in worship what God has commanded and approved. We used the example or saw the example in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira. They came and lied to the Holy Spirit. And we said the wise man comes with honesty and humility of heart. We also looked at the example of the Old Testament of the Judaizers who came and offered the sacrifice of fools by coming with performance rather than by seeking the grace and mercy that is offered through Jesus Christ. So now today we come to verse two. Be not rash with thy mouth or don't be hasty in your words or impulsive in what you bring up in the presence of God. So verse one focused on the way that we come to church. And now verse two turns attention to the tongue, turns our attention to what is spoken by those who would come before God. I think last week when we talked about watch your step, tread carefully, uh, we said that there are many times when this would be good advice, watch your step, tread carefully, and it might have other application other than what the preacher intended when writing this book of Ecclesiastes. Well, the same holds true here today. It is perhaps more easily recognized in our text today in, in verse two and following. How often would it be good advice to say, don't speak rashly. Be careful, little mouth, what you say. James tells us that the tongue, the mouth, the, the speech elements of our body are small, but they are powerful. How often would it be good advice to say, don't be hasty, think before you speak, I'm reminded of the wisdom that I heard growing up as a child. Think before you speak and listen before you speak. God gave you two ears and one mouth. You should listen twice as much as you speak. Also, I, I'm, I'm hearing the voice of my father. God gave you lips and teeth. That's two doors over your tongue. <laughs> Keep them closed. <laughs> Some don't like it, but... I was raised in a, in a generation that was taught children are to be seen and not heard. 
there's something to be said about being careful with our speech. That's not just advice for children. That's advice for every one of us. It would be good. And I, I believe that the context of our text today is still specific to the words spoken to God, words spoken in worship, vows taken to God. But some hold that this text has a broader intent. Uh, the verse plainly says, as I paraphrase, watch what you say when you utter anything before God. And if you're a plain and simple guy like I am, then you say, well, this is talking about, this is talking about when you're speaking to God. But, but others say, no, it, it's saying to any person and to no particular person, whatever is said to any person, whatever might be said to no particular person, it's all said before God. So watch what you say before God would include everything that you say. The New American Standard, rather than saying before God, it says, watch what you say in the presence of God. Well, who can argue against that? Everything that we do and everything that we say is in the presence of God. Everything that we do in our lives is before God. And broader application to this verse is so evident. So, so those who would say that there's broader application, we wouldn't say that they're wrong. But even if there is a broader application, a broader intent that could be taught here, there certainly must be a priority given. There certainly has to be a special gravity attached to the Godward speech, to the things that we say to, and I would add, about God. What we say is important. Every word that we say is important. No, wait a minute. I just realized who I'm talking to. Not all of you, but some of you, you believe that everything you say is important and you need to be told it's not that important. Let thy words be few. We're going to get to that. But it's important what we say and what we don't say. And, and arguably, what we say about God is the most important things that we will ever say. A.W. Tozer said powerfully, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And, and I would add to that, looking at our text today, what comes from our lips when we speak to God or when we speak about God is the most important thing that we will ever utter. There are sometimes when a command of scripture is given or a warning. And, and I think even, even in preparing to preach a, a specific text of scripture, I think, well, this is not really our problem. This, this is not really applicable to us today. This is, for, this is for someone else struggling with something, but we don't struggle with this. But then there are times when we can say, yeah, this is, this is us. We, we really have a difficult time with this one. Oh, and, and I think such is the case with the text today. This verse instructs us, don't be rash, don't be hasty, don't be impulsive when you speak. And, and we see rash, hasty, impulsive speech among us. As a matter of fact, this is the prevalent, the, the overwhelming practice among us. 
It's a quick tongue. And even when we might speak more slowly, being from the South, we might speak more slowly than others in other parts of the world. Sometimes we still speak too hastily. It's not about the pattern of speech. It's not about the speed of the utterance. It's about relative speed. It's about the speed of the mouth in relation to the speed of the mind. We speak often before we think. Uh, we might say we, we speak before we think well. We speak before we think enough. And we considered last week Ananias and Sapphira as, as an example of the foolish sacrifice that I called them to serve this week again as an illustration of those who did not think well before they spoke. They didn't consider all the consequences of the vow they made to God. The reasoning given us to motivate us we should, we should think well before we speak and, and to motivate us to do that is, is found in the second half of verse 2. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. So we don't want to just hurry through this, this, this reading. Well, God's in heaven and you're on earth. Let's not think of this as a geography lesson. God is there and you're here. It, it means far more than that. God is in heaven. This conveys the high and holy character of God. God is in heaven. I, I thought as I was preparing this message, I got, sometimes you get a song stuck in your mind. Some of you will remember Los Lonely Boys. They had a song, How Far Is Heaven? That's the song. I, God is in heaven and you are on earth and I have ringing in my ears. How far is heaven? Now that song was about someone who, uh, who did not want to live in the, the difficulties of this life but wanted to go to heaven and, and how long is it going to take? That's, that's the lament of the song. But, but as we think about this text and as I was thinking about how far is heaven, I thought we should we should think about the distance to heaven in the terms that our confession uses. What is the distance between God and man? Exactly what is the creature creator distinction? God is in heaven and you are on earth. What's the distance between you and God? Uh, this statement is to remind us Of the utter difference between God and man. God is not like man. Someone said, and I think sadly but truly, that God made man in his image. And ever since the fall, man has been trying to make God in his image. I think we do that. We try to make a God that's like, like me. But God is not like you. God is not like me. Praise God for that. God is not like man. There is no comparison. So it's not even proper for us to say, and, and we'll say these things, but it's not, it's not technically proper when we say 
God is higher than we are or God is greater than we are. We may be expressing a truth as we mean it, but properly God cannot even be compared to man. We are made in his image, yet he is not like us. To apply this to the matter at hand, the distance between creature and creator, the distance between God and man, we know how we are. The text is speaking of, of, of the text is speaking of speaking. The text is, is teaching us about speaking and the things that we say to and about God and the vows that we make and the promises that we make. Well, I know how I am and you know how you are. I mean, you made a promise, you took a vow, you said some things, but if you change your mind, later if I regret what I promised, or if, this may be likely, if I forget what I promised, we can always find a way to get past it, right? I mean, man to man, human to human, person to person, we can find a way to get past all this because we say, after all, I too say things that I don't mean. I too say things that I forget. I too change my mind from time to time. I go back on my promises occasionally. We know that we're not good at keeping our words. So even when we enter into a contract, even when there are legal contracts, there are, there are contingencies built in in case someone reneges on the contract. There are consequences. Default on your mortgage and you lose your house. Stop paying your car note and get it repossessed back out of a real estate contract, you lose your earnest money. We are so accustomed to people not following through on what they say that we build this in all the time. I mean, goodness, I don't have this in my notes, but what do we expect of politicians? Lots, right? I mean, we expect, we hope to get a greater percentage of truth out of this one than out of that one. But, but with all of them, we expect some level of dishonesty, some level of self-serve. Anyway, that's not in my notes. I should move on. So many people take vows and then don't mean them. How, how many take marriage vows and then back out? This is so common that people take marriage vows and then one or both parties want out of the marriage that they tried to invent something called no-fault divorce. Now we both stood at the altar and we both said, till death alone parts us, but now we've changed our minds. And I'm not willing to take fault. <laughs> and, and I don't think, I, I'm not trying to make you take the blame. It's not my fault, it's not your fault. We just want different things. So we break of that. Friends, we, we dare not think that God is anything like us. And especially in this. He is truth. And there is no false notion in him at all. There's no capacity. We just talked about this this morning in Sunday school. There's no capacity for change. God cannot change his mind. Now, 
some of you just thought, well, wait a minute, I thought the Bible said God changed his mind. Uh, we need to talk about anthropopathisms at some point. The figure of speech, the, the stooping down to speak to us on human terms, to communicate to us something in human terms that we could not understand otherwise. But scripture is very plain. God does not change and God does not change his mind. There is no, James tells us, no shadow of turning, no shadow due to change. The great triune God, creator and sustainer of all things, high and holy, is in heaven. That is his perspective. And you are on earth. God fills the heaven. And you fill one tiny place on earth. So do not be hasty or impulsive in thought to speak an utterance before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, therefore, because of the weight and the gravity of this, here's what you do. And we might think, well, the first answer is if you don't want to be hasty in thought to utter a thing, well, just think more, just think it through. And we do have that instruction in the following verses, but the first thing that is offered, the first line of defense against this foolish behavior is let your words be few. Again, how many times is this just good general advice? I told someone once when we were talking about this, this very thing, let your words be few. I said, pretend that your words cost a dollar each and then say fewer of them. Save them up. More often we regret what we say than what we didn't say. Sure, sometimes we wish we had said more, but, but on the ballots we say too much far more often. Let your words be few. And, and so it is in speaking to God, let your words be few. This is, this is good instruction. Now, now, we do need to point out that there are times when more words are good and when more words are necessary, when more words are even the duty of a Christian. So as a general principle, let your words be few, but there are times when we need more words. Now, think of the times when much time should be spent in prayer. Well, much time spent in prayer will necessarily mean more words, more words uttered. The book of Nehemiah recalls a time when the word of God was read and the people stood for the reading of the word of God for, it says, a quarter of the day. A quarter of the day they stood for the reading of the word of God. And then for another quarter of the day they prayed, the scripture says, confessing and worshiping the Lord their God. There were a lot of words uttered that day. A lot of thoughts that came up in the heart that were expressed to God. Luke tells us that our Lord spent a whole night in prayer. Well, a whole night in prayer. I mean, I don't know if you guys will have a prayer meeting Wednesday night. It won't be the whole night. But some of us have been to prayer meetings that have lasted two or three hours. 
Many words are uttered. We know that before the Lord's crucifixion in the garden, he prayed and he went away and came back and returned to prayer at least three times. So there are many words uttered in prayer and sometimes many words uttered in prayer are necessary. So this statement, let your words be few, what is meant by this? What is meant by this statement? Is it, well, you should not pray a long prayer? Well, I, I, I don't think I put it in my notes, but let me remind you that, that the Lord instructs us in the New Testament that we should not pray with many words to be heard, just adding words to fluff up our prayers. Some people do that, right? You have to speak in a certain way. You have to add flowery language. There's a, there's a balance that must be here between reverent respect for God and speaking to him as the high and holy God that he is and flowery, flattering language. This statement, let your words be few, and what is intended by it here, it may be more than this, but it's at least this, when vowing before God, let your words be few. When vowing before God. Now, when we vow before God, let your words be few. Don't be hasty. Don't be rash. Don't be thoughtless. Now, I remind you of the Old Testament example from the book of Judges, the man Jephthah. Some of you will remember Jephthah. Others may not. Jephthah is a man who prayed he was a warrior and he prayed that God would give him victory in battle. And he said, if God would give him victory in battle, then when he returned home, the first thing to come out to greet him, he would offer that as a sacrifice to the Lord. And God gave him the victory and he returned home. And when he returned home, the first one to come out to greet him singing and dancing was his young virgin daughter, his only child. And his vow was spoken. He couldn't take it back. But his vow was spoken without enough thought. I see this all the time. I, I say it this way. Sometimes we're poor communicators. We say without speak, without thinking. We speak without thinking. The result for Jephthah was tragic. And the result for us, though different, is still tragic. Listen to Matthew Poole's comments on our text. Be not too, he says, be not too prodigal. Now we're not accustomed to that word prodigal. We always think of the prodigal son. What did he do? He spent recklessly. He spent frivolously. He spent freely. That's the meaning of the word prodigal. So I'm going to put that in. Be not too free or reckless in making more vows and promises then thou art either able or willing and resolved to perform. Remember that God looks down from heaven and heareth all thy vows and expects a punctual accomplishment of them. I think he summed up this text very well. As, as we consider now, let thy words be few. I think now is the right time to remember that 
We don't have to make vows. We don't have to make vows. Vows are voluntary. Vows are not mandatory. Let's go back to our example. Ananias and Sapphira. They vowed to give the proceeds from selling a piece of land. They were going to give the proceeds, all of it, to the church. They were going to give this all to the Lord. And when the land sold, they lied about the price that they received. I don't know why. The scripture doesn't tell us. Maybe it was far more. Hey, wait a minute. We were going to give X to the church, but now we got 2X for the land. We can keep half. Maybe it was that. Maybe it was, hey, the fees, uh, closing costs back then were probably a murder. Maybe the fees were more. Whatever the reason, whatever the motives were, they lied about the price that they received. And Peter, in speaking to them, he points out that while the land was yours, was it not yours to do with as you will? Now this teaches us the law of personal property. Some people think Christians shouldn't own property. And Peter says, no, it's yours. And it's yours to do with as you will. Well, there's, there's property law in Scripture. We can own things. And, and Peter says that. But as he's saying, when the land was yours, was it not yours to do as you will? What he's saying is, you did not have to make this vow. You were not compelled to make this vow. You could have said, we're going to sell the land. We're going to keep the money. We're going to keep all of it. And it's yours. You can do that. They could have said, we're going to give a portion of it. They could have said, they could have said nothing. And I wonder in retrospect if they didn't think they should have said nothing. Friends, sometimes we want to add something to our words. We want to give it a little oomph. We want to give it a little pizzazz. So, so we want to add, we want to, Perhaps to lend credibility, perhaps to increase the intensity of what we're saying. So we want to add, I want to swear by something. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on the life of my children. Or, or we sometimes we hear this, I swear to God. Maybe it's more common now that we hear this. As God is my witness. Now I was taught as a child that we should never swear to God. But actually God is the only one by which we should swear. God is the only one by which we should swear. Our confession reminds us of this. And it reminds us in, in chapter 23. That's the, the chapter on lawful oaths and vows. Uh, so that would be. Uh, oaths and vows, those that we have between people horizontally and those that we have between man and God vertically. Um, our confession in chapter 23, paragraph 2, reminds us that we should swear by nothing save the name of God alone. It says this, the name of God only is that by which men ought to swear and there it is to be used with all holy fear and reverence. Therefore to swear vainly or rashly by that glorious and dreadful name or to swear at all by any other thing is sinful and to be abhorred. Only God is truth and only God can be the witness to truth. So there are times that we call upon God to 
witness to the truth, to the veracity of our statements because he is the true witness and the only one by which we can swear. And there are times when that is good. There are times when that is necessary. But when we do that, we should not do it rashly. We should not do it without thought. Because swearing by the name of God, turning a statement into a vow or an oath, this adds so much weight to the matter. And remember, you don't have to swear. You don't have to make a vow. And if you don't have to, then don't. It's pretty good advice. And we read this earlier. This is text that we read earlier in our service is found in Matthew chapter 5 and, and we'll be getting to that soon in our Sunday school study where Jesus says let your words be yea, yea and nay, nay. Let your words be yes, yes and no, no. For whatever is more than that gives rise to evil. We read that just earlier in our, in our so, so then he continues so let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Let your yes mean yes. Let your no mean no. Now, sometimes when we seek to live by that, Christians, we have to remind other people. <laughs> They're so accustomed to living with people who are less than honest. So they were like, do you swear? Do you promise? I mean, on your mother's grave, on your children's land. Sometimes they, they are trying to get that from us and we have to say wait a minute I'm trying to guard my words to make my yes yes and my no no to make what I say to be true and I don't have to make a vow so I'm not making a vow but I will say yes or I will say no vows are not mandatory they're voluntary let your words be few verse 4 and 5 give us further wisdom concerning the vows that we make to God. What happens to the time? Wow. My goodness. Let's try to hurry. When we vow a vow to God, verse 4, when thou vowest a vow to God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. When you take a vow and you delay in payment, the scripture here is saying that is foolish behavior. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Verse 5, better is it that thou shouldst not vow than thou shouldst vow and not pay. Defer not to pay. When you make a vow to God, having well thought it out, having made the vow without haste, without rashness, get about the business of following through. Verse 4 is clear that the one who makes a vow to God and then delays is a fool Again, it's better not to vow. Verse 5 reinforces that. Verse 6 adds to the problem to vow and not pay. It's not only foolish, it's sin. It's not only foolish, but it's sin. Verse 6, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Now here we have some figures of speech. The mouth is meant for what expresses, however you express the vow. By mouth, by written word, by the secret thought of your heart, however the vow is made, 
That is referred to here as the mouth. And flesh here is meant for your whole self. This is not teaching that you can sin in the flesh, but not sin in the spirit. This is not teaching that horrible doctrine. This says, don't let making a vow, however you make it, cause you to sin. When you make a vow, get on the fulfilling of the vow. Get on with it. There's a little insight into some people neither say before the angel that it was an error. Neither say before the angel that it was an error. First, what we might mean by the angel here, what might be meant here. There are three possible things what is meant by the angel. First of all, this could mean angels in general. What Say before an angel, a messenger from God. Uh, secondly, this could mean the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, Jesus Christ is often referred to as the angel of the Lord in what we call Christophanies. So this could mean angels, or this could mean Jesus Christ. Or thirdly, this could refer to a minister of God. In the Old Testament, that would be a priest. In the New Testament, we would think of this as a pastor. Uh, the word angel literally means a minister of God. So we see uh, the word minister of God. The angels are referred to as ministering angels, ministers of God, and Pastors are referred to as angels in the book of Revelation to the angel of the church of such and such and such and such a place. I write speaking to the pastors in those places. So here when we read, do not say before the angel, this could mean angels, this could mean Jesus, or this could mean pastors. Uh, Matthew Poole makes the case that the preacher uh, writing Ecclesiastes likely means the priest or for us the pastor, because in the Old Testament, vows made to God were usually paid to the priests. So the person would give an answer or would give a, a statement to the priest, no matter how you take this angel thing to be, if this is angels, if this is Jesus Christ, or if this is the priest, no matter how you take it, the point is, it's no excuse to say, well, that was a mistake. I messed up. I, I shouldn't have made that vow. I mean, you can say it. But don't think that God is going to take your admission of ignorance and stupidity in place of the promise that you made. Don't say before the angel, this was a mistake, and think you're getting out of your vow. The verse continues, this would make God angry at your voice. This would make God angry at your voice. Now, what is meant here? Either angry at your voice as you uttered the vow in haste when you weren't going to follow through or angry at your voice as you utter the excuse. This is a mistake. Either way, it's a lousy excuse and it angers God. Verse six, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore, God should be angry at thy voice and destroy the works of thine hand. Now, when we think about the works of your hand, we remember again that this is the high, holy God of heaven. And think back to that vow. And some of you can think, some of us can think back to the vows that we have made in haste, those foolish vows. God, if you get me out of this, God, if you fix this problem, God, if you will do this thing. So what is meant here by destroy the works of your hand? It could mean that God says that thing that you asked, that thing that I did when you made the vow and now you've gone back on your vow, I'm going to undo that thing. 
That mess I got you out of, I'm going to put you back in it. Where I got you untangled, you're going to be retangled. That problem that was solved is going to come back. It could mean that, or it could mean, remember, this is the high and holy God of heaven. When it speaks of destroying the works of your hand, this could mean destroying everything in your whole life. Or anything in between. For the sake of time, we won't deal with verses 3 and 7. I group them together because they talk about the business of dreams. But let me just say this. When man is wrapped up in a multitude of business, that business will invade his dreams. And the business comes out in dreams just like the fool's foolishness comes out in a multitude of words. And so we can, we can see that. And this section then closes in verse 7. And we got to get to this before we close. This section closes. After all this warning, watch your step when you come to the house of God. Watch your mouth when you speak to God. Be careful what you say when you make a vow. Don't be hasty. Don't be rash. Now, you fear God. And that's how we close this. Now, now last week I... I teased you with something and maybe some of you got it we pointed out that the preacher who has written ecclesiastes looking and analyzing all the things of the world and, and has found nothing of lasting value has found nothing but vanity and vapor and striving after the wind he's found nothing that was that was something to hold on to i, I teased last week and said here in these verses there would be something of lasting value there would be something of lasting profit. And it's in the house of God. It's in worship. It's in speaking to God. It's in hearing God. This is the one thing under the sun which has meaning and purpose that goes beyond the sun. This is the one thing that goes beyond our lifetime. This is the one thing that goes Beyond time and into eternity, it's what we do in the house of God. It's what we hear from God and what we speak to God. It's the vows, hopefully not made rashly, but it's the vows that we make to Him. This is the thing that is not vanity. It's not vapor. It's not striving after the wind. This is purpose and meaning. When you miss I'm not talking about those who are out sick. But when we miss attendance to the preaching of the word of God for some frivolous reason, we are missing the only thing under the sun that has lasting value. The only thing. And it is of such consequence. It is of such great import that as we approach, we hear the words of the preacher, but thou fear God. God, help us. Help us to know the fear of God. Help us. Your word speaks of the fear of God as the beginning of knowledge, as the beginning of wisdom, as God, help us. We, we only know you as you have revealed yourself. And you have revealed yourself somewhat in, in creation. 
in the book of nature, but you have revealed yourself more fully in the book of scripture. Help us to know you through your revealed word. Help us to fear you. God, forgive us for we have made foolish, hasty, rash statements to one another and to you for that our only hope is to claim the blood of Jesus. We know that even a, even a sinful, unpaid vow is not too much for the blood of Christ. God help us. Help us to fear. We pray in Christ's name.